Yo! Welcome to the QTR Podcast. Today is July 25th, 2021. Happy to have you here. Lots to talk about today. First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout those people out very quickly. I'll give you the two rules for today's podcast, and then we're going to get on with what I think is some important topics that we have to discuss today. It's not often that I try to put a serious spin on shit, but I do have some legitimate things. I mean, you know, been bouncing around in my fucking head for the last 24 to 48 hours, and I said, you know what? I got to do a podcast. I got to put these down today and just punt these out onto the internet, if not for any other reasons than just for cathartic reasons for myself. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion. I have been doing business with JM Bullion for years now. Very happy with the service I get from them. They turn around my orders very quickly. They ship them on time. They always have a great amount of inventory for me to look through. And that is why I am happy to shout them out on every podcast. Not only because they support the show, but because they're great people to do business with. And I've known a couple of the guys over there at JM Bullion now for a couple of years. Couldn't be happier. They've been in business for nearly a decade. They have done over $3 billion in sales. And QTR podcast listeners have their own salesperson over at JM Bullion. Never dealt in gold and silver bullion before. You have questions. You would like a more personalized touch you can reach out to Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email. She would be happy to help get you set up with whatever it is that you need. You tell her you're a QTR podcast listener, and uh, she will be uh, at your service. And then you can deal with a person. Because right now, everywhere else in the world, you go on the website, you try to call a business. You know, I tried to call Best Buy in South Philly the other day. Their message was literally, nobody is here to answer the phone right now goodbye, or it was worse than that. It was like, this location isn't set up to receive phone calls. It was something just like, hey, we're just not fucking doing phone calls anymore. And that's pretty much, you know, COVID has given all these companies excuses to just slag on customer service. And, uh, every, you know, everywhere you call, by the way, is it not the standard everywhere you call now that said, please, please expect longer than usual wait times. No matter where you call, that's a person on the phone right now for you. It's always, you're going to have to wait longer. They're always preparing you to wait longer. Somebody wants to start a business by phone where you call and then a human being picks up, that business would flourish right now because everybody else is too busy feeding you bullshit excuses about why they don't have enough people to deal with you and they value you as a customer, but they can't get on the fucking phone with you and that's ridiculous. So, you have the lovely Laura you can reach right out to anytime you want. This podcast also Brought to you by one of my new favorite Substacks that actually I wound up reading before uh, they showed interest in supporting the podcast, and that is the Doomberg Doomberg Substack. I put the link to the Substack, and I first read their piece on Michael Saylor called A Drunken Sailor, I think a month or two back, and I actually didn't really pay much attention to the author. Um, but I was just reading the piece because it got kind of uh, got some play on Twitter and it was well written and well researched. And uh, I have since gone back and started reading some of the other articles in the Substack. And if you are a QTR podcast listener, the content is uh, right along the same lines. Uh, you know, they view the world in the same skeptical lens as we do. And I think that is what we need right now amidst euphoria. We need skepticism. I also found out later that I happen to know the people that are behind Doomberg, and they're also people that I respect, and their you know, investment acumen I respect. And so I am a reader now. I am happy they are supporting the podcast. I am happy to recommend them. Sign up for their Substack. Keep yourself in the loop. That is in the podcast description. The link is in the podcast description for the Doomberg Substack. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboy Sang, Lucci, and Wall Street Jesus, who have a little platform called The Steam Room. It is... Really, the premier product if you want to track options flow, if you do your trading based on where money is coming into the options market, which is why you know CNBC and all these other services offer you unusual options activity because it is interesting and a lot of times can telegraph 
where equities are going to go. There's no better product than Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus's Steam Room. The link to the Steam Room is in my podcast description. They will give you a 30-day free trial. Get in touch with Lucci. Get in touch with Wall Street Jesus. Tell them QTR sent you. Tell them you want to log in. You want to try it without a credit card, without bullshit, without nonsense. You're interested in the service. They will work with you. They will make it so that you get to check out the Steam Room. These guys have been doing this for a decade now. I mean, I met Lucci and started talking to him in 2012, I think, when I joined Twitter. I've known him almost 10 years now. Honest guy, reputable person to do business with, and we'll be back on the podcast, I think, uh, in August. I was just talking to him yesterday, so... Shout out to Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Those links for the Steam Room are in the podcast description. Finally, this podcast is brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform. George Gammon has teamed up with Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, also now Brent Johnson, and he has added a couple more people to the roster to give you Rebel Capitalist Pro, which is basically you're getting access to these people who think like, you know, like we do. They view the world through the same skeptical lens that we do. They do live Q&As every week, so any questions that you may have for George or Lynn or guys like Brent Johnson, you know, who's an extremely well-known, extremely intelligent individual, you get access to them. They do live Q&As. They share their portfolios. I love going on and looking at the model portfolios, and they have a forum where you can go and trade ideas. So if you're looking for investing ideas, if you're looking to just surround yourself, get advice, ask questions from people that, you know, see the world like we do. George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro is a great way to do that, and George is also a good friend. The link to that is in my podcast description. Finally, this podcast brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, and some of my newest patrons, people that have signed up since the last podcast, of course, I want to show them some love. Danny Wilson, what's going on, brother? Base Tradesman, thank you so much. Dope Lunchbox is in the house. Seth Donnelly's here. Joshua, thank you so much for your support. Gerald Burns signing up in pounds. What's going on, man? You in the UK? I appreciate the love from over the pond, man. Brad Nesseth, Gavin Thomas, Ed Kammeyer, Eric Wilhelm, thank you. Kathleen Kelly and David Reed, Traverse, thank you. Bretton Woods is still with me. And finally, just one or two people that have been with me for a minute. And then we're going to get on with the show. Trust me. Like, Nixon Fandon, thank you so much for your support. Sevier Wallen, thank you. Roy Zimmer Hansel, thank you. Jill is in the house. Thanks, Jill. Thomas Nunn, Bobby Brooks, what's going on? I love you guys. All right. This podcast has two rules. First is there is a three-drink minimum. The second is that I am not providing financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I hold no licenses. I hold no registrations. And I'm also not providing medical advice or life advice or political advice. You know, research your ideologies elsewhere, all right? Do your research on everything else elsewhere. This is half cathartic me getting shit off my brain and half just open discussion for the purposes of putting things out there. Do your own research. Please listen to nothing that I say. Rate this podcast one star so that less and less people see it. The goal is to drive myself into complete irrelevance, which shouldn't be difficult because I'm right about there now. But until then, what do I want to discuss today? Today, I want to discuss questioning the answers. And what does that mean? Well, if you're a listener of the podcast, you know that when it comes to the world of finance, I often talk about questioning the answers, also known as doing your own research. Why is that? It's because everybody that's in the industry has some type of pecuniary motivation. Generally, it all comes back to money one way or the other. But everybody has motivation to sell you something. And a great example, the quintessential example, is sell-side research, right? When uh, a large investment bank like a Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan comes out and they recommend a stock, and let's just take, for example... GSX, right? GSX was the education company that was alleged by many short sellers and many market participants to be a complete fraud. It was one of the companies held in Bill Huang's portfolio that eventually blew up and uh, and you know took the price of the stock that day. I think from something like over a hundred 
to 60 or 40 in the course of like two, three days when he had to liquidate that position. It was a stock that everybody kind of knew may have been gamed upwards to try to catalyze a short squeeze using options, essentially people going in and buying out of the money calls in order to force market makers to delta hedge and buy the stock with the potential intention of catalyzing a short squeeze. And that's the kind of name that you would do it in because the entire short selling community had pointed to this company as being a fraud. By the way, the stock I think closed on Friday at $4 or something, right? So let's talk about GSX for a second, right? Everybody kind of knew, this guy, the IP hawk that I follow on Twitter, had been tweeting, look, one day we're going to wake up and the fucking thing's going to be below $5. And, you know, that was a bold statement to make while the stock was at 100 or at 90 And I was saying similar things. You know, one day it's just going to all end. It's going to have its luck and coffee moment. I mean, the irony of the situation is that GSX was eventually maimed by Chinese regulators. It was it was China that came out and said, hey, we're going to make all the for-profit education stuff non-profit. And that clobbered the stock. So it was Bill Huang blowing up that took it from 100 to like 50. And then these rumors of all of this um, regulatory oversight from China are what has driven it down. And, you know, I'm guessing there's some sentiment uh, issues there too. The whole world knows that this company's been accused of fraud. And now here we are at $4 per share, right? So if you uh, were a buyer at 100, you lost 95 or 96% of your investment in this equity. And if you wanna go back two podcasts ago and listen to me talk about Didi, you can hear about all of the risks inherent with investing in US-listed China-based equities. One of those risks was that I pointed out in that podcast that the Chinese Communist Party wields unbelievable power. So they have the you know ability to come in and just hack the balls right off a company and just castrate a company no matter whether or not it's listed on the U.S. markets or not. I mean, there's nothing stopping the Chinese Communist Party from saying, hey, Didi is going to need to be a nonprofit company that... Um, you know, for betterment of the Chinese people, uh, we want to be a uh, we want to be a service provided by the government for the people from now on, and that would crush it. You know, as a profit generating company, and it would crush it on the U.S. exchanges. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't care about that, and the power that they wield is immense. So if they say it, I mean, that's what's going to happen. Unfortunately, you know, if you're a DD shareholder. Now, conversely, if the Chinese Communist Party comes out and says, you know, look, DD cleaned up its act. And we want to make, you know, we're just uh, upset that they IPO'd and we didn't get our slice of the pie or we're not getting enough of their data or something. And they say that we want it to become a partially state-owned enterprise now. Well, who knows? The stock could triple from, you know, $8 up to $24 in a week. You never know. So the, the volatility and the, uh, the possibilities for these U.S.-listed China-based equities are crazy. With that being said, the reason I wanted to point to GSX as an example was because it wasn't that long ago, it was just a couple of like months ago that Goldman Sachs had put out a note on GSX, uh, basically, I think, putting a $60 price target on the company. This was in April 28th, 2021. So it wasn't that long ago. And essentially, this was after all of the fraud allegations had come forth by short sellers. So GSX had been a controversial name for a long time. Uh, At this point, you know, over a year probably at this point, there were plenty of time for uh, various shorts. Okay, closed at $3.52 on Friday. I mean, that's just an absolute decimation. That's a game over move. That's a luck and coffee day, right? Uh, or it's a luck and coffee month. So the point of the matter is that the allegations of the company being fraud and being a bad actor had been out there now for like, you know, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. And yet, despite what seemed to be a very robust set of evidence, uh, Goldman Sachs came out in April, late April, 2021, 
GSX rose 9% in pre-market trading after the Chinese tutoring company was double upgraded to buy from sell at Goldman Sachs on valuation. With the recent stock correction, the stock is now trading at 12-month forward EV to sales of 3.1, close to the low end since its IPO, according to Goldman analyst Christine Cho. And she put a price target on the stock of $60 per share, which would have been 93% upside at the time. So it must have been trading about $30 per share at the time. And now it's down 90% essentially from those levels. And that was April of 2021. So why do investment banks make calls like that? Is it, I mean, did she really just get this wrong? They knew that um, Archegos had dumped this huge position. Uh, and that's in the report. You know, it was at least partly hurt by the liquidation, which caused large blocks of GSX to be sold down. But they didn't even address the idea that, you know, if you had gone through the short seller skepticism of the company, it was pretty clear that there were some major questions being asked. So at the very least, you'd want to discount the valuation that you are using for the company. But regardless, you know, investment banks are motivated many times because they want investment banking business for the company, okay? You know, that they're not always rooted in common sense and valuations and, you know, uh, infallible models. Oftentimes, banks put out pie-in-the-sky price targets and buy ratings on companies because they want that company's business. Or in some cases, like we're seeing with a lot of the SPACs, Investment banks, if you even want to call them that in some of these cases, go out and upgrade a SPAC company right ahead of a lockup, you know, which is to maybe help generate some volume for the company so that people that were on the inside can sell out, uh, sometimes, many times, including that investment bank itself. So there's always a motivation. And, you know, when I talk about finance on the podcast, That is one of the things that I advocate for. Doing your own research, doing your own work, making your own decisions, uh, and sticking with them. And being, you know, happy about when you buck the trend and find out for yourself uh, something that is being presented in a different fashion. And you only have yourself to blame when you get something wrong, which that's the way to be, right? That's personal responsibility. If I bought... GSX on Goldman's upgrade and it got clobbered, you know, that would still be my fault because I didn't do the research myself. I bought it on Goldman's upgrade. So to do something like that and then turn around and blame Goldman Sachs, I don't even think that's the right way to go about it. That doesn't mean I think what Goldman did here is great because I don't think that, but I think that people need to be forewarned that there are generally other forces at play that if you're aware of could enable you to approach these things with a different air of skepticism uh, than most people that just see a bank price target and say, that's where the stock is going. And I haven't even looked at the cash flow statement. I haven't even looked at the income statement. I haven't even looked at the balance sheet. I don't know anything about the business. Goldman says 60. I'm rooting for 60. That's it. Sure, that's the easy way to do it. But, you know, that can lead you astray and down the wrong path very easily. So, It is in that vein, it is along those lines that I wanted to do the podcast today on questioning the answers, because if you noticed on Twitter this morning, I put up a tweet about the lab leak, the COVID lab leak theory, and I was thinking, you know, there were a couple of things in the world of COVID that I wanted to discuss, uh, but in a couple of things that have developed over the last couple of months that when I collectively think about, really kind of floor me. And I think that when the powers that be change the narrative on something, you know, whether the information on COVID is coming down from the CDC and then the CDC reports to social media and social media, you know, goes based on their guidelines, whoever's at the top of the pyramid that's handing down the rules, the regulations, the narrative, what we can talk about, what we can't talk about, what's important, what isn't important. When when that power that that's at the top of the pyramid kind of starts to shift the narrative, 
oftentimes it's done in a very delicate and very, you know, kind of slow and, uh, you know, slow way that's spread out over time. So you can't really notice it. You know, it's not like now that we're talking about the lab leak theory being a possibility, it's not as though, you know, MSNBC came out yesterday and said the lab leak is a total bullshit nonsense conspiracy theory. And then today they're out saying, oh, the lab leak's a possibility. It's not that stark. It's been a gradual kind of acceptance over the last couple of months that perhaps the lab leak theory shouldn't be ruled out, right? It's not an admission by the powers that be that, hey, this likely came from a lab, right? They're not saying that. It's been a gradual shift in tone, a gradual shift in narrative, a gradual shift But really, when you compare it to where we were 18 months ago, the difference is very stark. And so one of the things that I wanted to point out on this podcast today was really the black and white difference between what we were being told in early 2020 about the COVID pandemic and the lab leak theory specifically and what we are okay with saying now and what the difference is and what the facts and what common sense told everybody back in early 2020. You know, when you listen to this Dr. Pierre Corey, who's one of these ivermectin advocates, he said on a podcast, I spend all this time, He's a, I think he's an ER doctor and he spends a lot of time dealing with patients. He's on the front lines of the pandemic. And as a doctor, he says he spends all this time trying to just read tea leaves and make these very delicate connections. Essentially, you know, when you have somebody check into the hospital, many times you have to go through quite a bit of deductive reasoning to try to figure out not only a diagnosis, but then potentially, you know, diagnoses that are linked to each other, what could be causing the problem to begin with. There's a lot of deductive reasoning. There's a lot of logic. There's a lot of problem solving. So in one of these debates about ivermectin, he he says um, that he spends a lot of his time, you know, reading between the lines and reading the tea leaves and trying to kind of delicately find enough of a tipping point in the preponderance of the evidence to come up with an accurate diagnosis for somebody or an accurate treatment plan for somebody. And he said that, you know, when I heard that the lab was just miles down the street from the uh, Wuhan wet market that oh that that was all I needed to hear I mean as far as I'm concerned as somebody that reads tea leaves and puts together these delicate connections that is a bright shining light of you know way more than a coincidence for him and he said you know I'm paraphrasing what he said but something like that when he found that out that he was essentially floored and you know throughout 2020 one of the things that I talked about on this podcast and uh, other people talked about was the fact that, you know, look, you don't need to be, you don't need to be solving complex math equations or you don't need to be in the medical field doing a lot of modeling to understand that common sense and only common sense should indicate that if there is a biolab miles from where this outbreak purportedly happened and they happened to be doing some type of modification of coronaviruses that perhaps perhaps even if we're wrong even if the lab league people were wrong perhaps that should be the first thing that we look into and that is nothing more than common sense right so if you had people that were really interested in looking objectively at the truth versus towing whatever line they're given, right? These are people, if you have people that are interested in independently examining facts at all, instead of just literally parroting what they're being told by whoever the powers that be are, that in a situation like that, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody that... You know, could you imagine taking 100 people before the pandemic and describing the situation to them? Here's the deal, you know, in China, an outbreak occurs a couple of miles from a bio lab and it's a coronavirus and that's what they deal with at this lab. 
Um, do you think, you know, even if it did come from the seafood market, which is what the Chinese Communist Party was saying, do you think it is worth uh, entertaining the idea that perhaps it came from the lab? I'd say 99, if not 100 out of 100 people would say, yeah, that's probably something we should look into. So even if it wasn't the case that it came from the lab, what should be frightening about the way that people talked about it in early 2020 was that not only was it disregarded completely, but you were then labeled some kind of conspiracy theorist, some kind of kook, some type of disinformation you know, uh, agent for suggesting that it should be looked into. And that is frightening. These were some of the titles of the articles that came out in 2020. From March 2020, Vox put out an article that said, the conspiracy theories about the origins of the coronavirus debunked. There's a rumor the coronavirus started in a Chinese lab and evidence from scientists to the contrary. And what's great is that back then I pointed out there was a a conflation in, in the narrative. The powers that be were saying it didn't begin in the lab as though they didn't put it together from scratch. So they were kind of making this word salad and defending that like, hey, this didn't originate in a lab. But they didn't come out and say it didn't originate in a bat and then was taken to the lab and then eventually escaped from the lab. They were saying, oh, the origins, it's not a bioweapon, they were saying. You know, they were conflating all this stuff together. When really, I mean, what looks to be the leading uh, explanation for all of this is that perhaps this bat coronavirus was modified to improve its gain of function and then made its way out of this lab. And that is, of course, now what the scientific community is starting to come around to kind of acknowledging a little bit. But there was all this conflation. There was all this muck. You know, there was a, a cloud of confusion in 2020 about all of this stuff. So that's what Vox was putting out. The New York Times in February 2020 wrote about Tom Cotton, who, by the way, I was commending in 2020 for his hawkish and skeptical stance on what China was saying. And we'll talk about that in a second, too. The New York Times wrote, Senator Tom Cotton repeats fringe theory of coronavirus origins. Scientists have dismissed suggestions that the Chinese government was behind the outbreak, but it's the kind of tale that gains traction among those who see China as a threat. Again, conflation, that the Chinese government was behind the outbreak. They may not have been behind the outbreak, but that doesn't mean it didn't come out of the lab, right? It may not have been a purposeful gain-of-function experiment to try and infect human beings, but it doesn't mean that the gain-of-function properties of the virus hadn't been altered, right? So the truth lies in the nuance, I think. And I think we're going to find that out in coming months, which is why it's important to just not write off, you know, what really is in this case, the most common sense place to look, the most common sense theory for where this thing had come from. There's a bio lab. We can fucking, you know, the guy selling fish at the Wuhan market can fucking like see the bio lab from his fish stand. And they're saying, hey, it came from the market. You know, there's live poultry being tossed around and there's live animals and, you know, who knows? You know, a monkey fucked one of the fish the wrong way or something and voila, here we are and we've got a global pandemic. And meanwhile, at the same time, you know, they had replaced, I think, the head of the lab. Uh, They brought this woman in. I can't remember. It was like in early 2020 or mid-2020 to kind of like get the lab under control. She was, you know, she came in as like the the serious person that was going to lock down the lab and, you know, blah, 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 blah. If you don't think that, the, you know, the other problem with this too, and let me read you one more headline. This one was from The Guardian, who published an opinion piece by Peter Daszak, who is the president of the EcoHealth Alliance, who of course is the entity alleged uh, to have uh, been involved in funding Uh, the gain-of-function research. And this guy, and this is before anybody even knew this guy's name and and had associated him with this gain-of-function stuff the way that we are now. But back in June of 2020, The Guardian published an opinion piece from him called Ignore the Conspiracy Theories. Scientists know 
COVID-19 wasn't created in a lab. Instead of following false claims, we should focus our efforts on the regions where the next pandemic is likely to emerge. So in June, in the middle of the outbreak, he's saying, don't worry about the origins. Let's focus on the next one. Everybody look over here. Nothing to see here, right? And again, conspiracy theories. And again, COVID-19 wasn't created in a lab. Okay, but was it altered in a lab? Was it altered in a lab? Because you can make the very strong argument that it was created in nature and it still escaped from the lab. The two things are mutually, aren't mutually exclusive. So you can make the argument that the origins weren't from the lab, but still make the argument that it escaped from the lab. It's called, it was made in nature, it made its way into the lab, it was fucked with, and then it got out of the lab. That's what it is. So again, the points that are being defended and written off as conspiracy theories are points that require nuance to think about. This was another article from May 2020. Evidence of COVID's natural origin mounts, even as conspiracy theory about Chinese lab refuses to die. Again, we're conflating the bioweapon thesis, which is, you know, China created this and released it upon the world uh, in order to do harm to everybody, which I don't even believe that. I don't think that's the case. I mean, who knows? Nothing fucking surprises me anymore. But if I had to think about what the most likely explanation would be, it would be that the evidence of its natural origin mounting is perhaps because it was natural in origin until the gain-of-function stuff was fucked with, and then it somehow got out after that, right? So this episode is about questioning the answers because now what's going on and what you're seeing, you know, when Rand Paul questions Senator Fauci is you're seeing a tacit admission that the lab leak could be a thing, right? So, you know, a year ago, it was you're a conspiracy theorist. You're going to get banned from social media. And really, I mean, Zero Hedge was the quintessential example. It was like February or something, and they put that article out and said, is this the guy behind the coronavirus outbreak? And it was somebody that was researching back coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And for the question that they asked, they didn't say this is the guy. For the question that they asked about it, they were immediately banned from social media. So the narrative control at the time for, you know, preventing quote unquote disinformation was stringent, just as it is now. But now we see Fauci say things like this. This is from Rolling Stone. In uh, July 18th, so about seven days ago, the most likely explanation is a natural evolution from an animal reservoir to a human. Once you say that, which I believe is the more likely, you've got to make sure you emphasize that you still keep an open mind for all possibilities, including a lab leak. And again, are we talking about the initial origin of the virus or are we talking about where the altered virus that started the pandemic came from and you have to you have to think about that nuance it's important because you both can be true it can be true that the virus started in nature and it can be true that the covid outbreak came from a lab leak both can be true so that means you can make the argument one way or the other depending on which of the two things you want to hang on You can say, you know, it was a lab leak or you can say that it was a natural origin and both people can still be right and you have to understand that. So you have to be very careful and nuanced when people are kind of generating all of this word salad about this stuff. I'm going to read you one more thing that Fauci said about uh, his response to the lab leak theory. This is an incredible timeline that was put together by Forbes guy named Jack Brewster wrote this up for Forbes. The article is called, Here's What Dr. Fauci Has Said About COVID's Origins and the Lab Leak Theory. And, uh, you know, Fauci downplayed the possibility of a lab leak in April 2020, more than a year ago, saying the virus mutations are consistent, totally consistent with the jump of a species from an animal to a human. 
Again, important to know that both of these things can be correct. In May 2020, Fauci said he's very, very strongly, this is a quote, very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. Then in March of 2021, the uh, former Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield, remember he came out and said that there was a possibility of a lab leak. Fauci said, oh, well, that's just an opinion. He wrote it off as just an opinion. Then in May 2021, Fauci finally says to Rand Paul he's fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. Then, May 23rd, 2021, one week after a group of 18 prominent scientists published a letter in Science saying that natural spread and a lab accident were both viable explanations, Fauci tells PolitiFact's Katie Sanders he's, quote, not convinced quote, COVID came about naturally and says that the U.S. should, quote, continue to investigate what went on in China until we continue to find out to the best of our ability what happened. Then in May, the Wall Street Journal reported that a U.S. intelligence report found several Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists were hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in November 2019 Fauci said he thought it was, quote, highly likely that the virus first occurred naturally, but still wanted further investigation uh, into the origins. Then in June 3rd, he tells CNN, I keep an absolutely open mind that there may be other origins. It could have been a lab leak. In June of this year, he told CBS that we've always keep an open mind and continue to look And Fauci said, I think it's a bit of a distortion to say that they deliberately suppressed the lab leak. And then, of course, when we got the Fauci email dump, we know that in an email exchanged, and this is all still according to Forbes, in an email exchange published by the Washington Post on June 1st, Fauci thanks the disease expert and head of the controversial virus research nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Daszak, who, as I noted before, wrote that opinion piece calling the lab leak theory a conspiracy theory for praising him for dismissing the lab leak theory publicly. Quote, from my perspective, your comments are brave and coming from your trusted voice will help dispel the myths being spun around the virus's origins. Right? So there's that term, virus origins. Did the virus's origins come from Nature, or did they come from a lab? Well, if you're talking about the virus itself, like the molecular makeup of the virus, the origins could have been from natural causes. But you're talking about the origin of the outbreak, that could have been from a lab. So again, both things, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And that is helpful in generating all of this confusion. But if you take where we are now, and that timeline that Forbes published should be stunning enough, but if you take where we are now and you compare it to where we were in early 2020 and what the media and what social media were saying, it's a stunning and stark difference. So the question then becomes, Were the people that had the foresight to draw their own conclusions early in 2020 really the conspiracy theorists, or were they really the only people thinking for themselves? You know, it wasn't much fun in January of 2020 when I was out rushing to get Tyvek suits and goggles and masks because I had this feeling that this thing coming out of China was going to be a big deal and that we didn't know much about it. And I don't trust the Chinese Communist Party's narrative on anything. It wasn't comfortable being ridiculed for buying ammunition and, you know, making a uh, a pandemic storm cellar, essentially, where, you know, if I had to be locked in, because we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know if this was the common cold or if it was Ebola. So in a situation like that where there's uncertainty... You know, what did I do? I wanted to buy SPY puts (laughs) and I wanted to stock the house. 
And I said in a January or February 2020 podcast, and maybe somebody could go back and, you know, in my in my Peter Schiff was right video about the uh, COVID thing, somebody will find the clip where I said, it's not an issue until one morning you wake up and it's an issue. And that's what happened. One morning we woke up and it was an issue. And all the days before it, where I had been saying that this is something we needed to pay attention to, it's not comfortable. Just like it wasn't comfortable to go out and buck the trend of the official narrative being that there's no way this could have been from a lab, despite what your own, you know, lion eyes and lion ears are telling you when it allegedly begins, the outbreak allegedly begins just miles from a virology lab where they test coronaviruses. I mean, come on. You know, come on. We can't lose our way so much that we surrender. And look, if you want to be somebody that relies on the government to give you your opinions on everything, that's fine. You know, you're well within your rights to do that. But you can't completely surrender all of your independent thinking. You can't just plug yourself into the government narrative like in the Matrix, you know, when they jam the fucking thing in the back of your head and they just deliver the information directly to your brain. You have to retain 2% common sense, 2% independent and critical thinking. And that's really all you needed. In this case, you didn't need to be some conspiracy theorist, some, you know, doomsday prepper to figure out that the lab leak hypothesis at least, at the very least, needed to be investigated. So it's interesting to compare then, right, and and really try to think about what it was like then. Put yourself back, you know, a year and a half ago. What was the media saying? You know, find the clips. Go out, find the clips of the mainstream media over and over and over and over again saying it's conspiracy theory, it couldn't happen, it's disinformation, it's this and that. And here we are right now, you know, a year and a half later. And Fauci says on June 3rd, 2020, quote, it could have been a lab leak, quote. So who's the conspiracy theorist now? Is it the people that had the gall to think for themselves a year and a half ago? And Furthermore, when you're questioning the answers and you see these big, huge shifts in the narrative, a great thing to ask is what are we being told now versus what are we going to be told in 18 months from now? What right now is being written off as disinformation, as harmful to the public discourse that you're not allowed to say, that you're not allowed to do? That in 18 months from now, we could be hearing a full 180 on. And I fully believe that this shift about the lab leak theory is going to continue. Because it really, I mean, I'm not sure you could come up with a better example of Occam's razor than this, right? Which is the simplest explanation is probably the most likely explanation, right? So that's what I'm going on. That's what I'm betting on. I'm betting on Occam's razor. And I have been for a year and a half. I talked a second ago about Fauci's uh, email with Peter Daszak. You know, I was discussing this with my mother yesterday who said that she thought Fauci and Burks were under pressure from Donald Trump to kind of squelch their opinions on things, which may or may not be true, despite, you know, Fauci attesting in in early 2020 that he you know he says whatever he wants to say and um you know that he wasn't being muzzled but let's just say he was being muzzled. What do we know from his emails? Well, we know that he was having discussions about the potential for gain of function back in early 2020. And You know, if he's the hero that everybody wants him to be, why didn't he blow the whistle if he was being muzzled? You know, if he was passing around these emails saying it's vital to consider this gain-of-function research, and I'm going to read you this piece here real quick that's going to explain it. 
And let me do that first, actually. This is from the New York Post, and it's an article uh, about Rand Paul's allegations of what Fauci knew and didn't know. Newly released emails from White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci prove that he knew the Wuhan Institute of Virology was carrying out dangerous gain-of-function research, Senator Rand Paul charged Wednesday night. This is from June 3rd. Quote, The emails paint a disturbing picture, a disturbing picture of Fauci from the very beginning, worrying that he had been funding gain-of-function research, Rand Paul said. And he knows it to this day, but hasn't admitted it. Paul, who has repeatedly clashed with Fauci over various issues related to the pandemic, was referring to a February 1, 2020 email Fauci sent to his top deputy at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. The email was among 3,200 pages of messages to and from Fauci from a FOIA request. Quote, Hugh, it is essential that we speak this AM, Fauci wrote. Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper as well as the email that I will forward to you now. You will have tasks today that must be done. The NIAID director attached a PDF of a 2015 paper published in the journal Nature Medicine titled, quote, A SARS-like cluster of circulating bat coronaviruses shows potential for human emergence. Quote, one of the paper's authors was Dr. Shi Zhengli, a Wuhan Institute of Virology researcher known as the, quote, Batwoman, quote, for her work on bat coronaviruses. Fauci also sent the paper to National Institutes of Health Deputy Director Dr. Lawrence Tabak. Quote, the paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause in October 2014, but have not since been reviewed and approved by NIH. Uh, Hugh Auchincloss emailed Fauci later in the day. Not sure what that means, since Emily is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework. She will try to determine if we have any distant ties to this work abroad. So we get a peek of what was going on behind the scenes while we were being told, you know, that we were insane for considering the lab leak. And meanwhile, in February 2020, it was a priority enough for Fauci to email that paper and say, hey, we got to look into this. So something, you know, something got him fired up about that enough to be talking about it. So what's going on? You know, what is going on? And again, what are we being told today that we're going to find out 18 months from now? You know, what's being talked about behind the scenes right now that the public isn't being, you know, subjected to? And I think if we want to try to arrive at some of these conclusions on our own, the best thing to do is just to use common sense, to try to let the data drive your decisions, try to find the most objective data you could possibly find, analyze it, and do your own research in addition to considering both sides of the aisle. Consider what the right says and what the left says. Consider what Dr. Fauci says and what Rand Paul says. But you can't plug in like the Matrix and just download a narrative into your brain and be fine with it without examining it at all. Because then you're just a useful idiot at that point. And one thing, you know, when I was speaking to my mother, one thing that she did admit, because my mom was not a fan of Trump's, and so she was critical of his handling of the situation, as was I too. I said in early 2020 it was going to cost him the election. And you can make whatever argument you want about the election, but ultimately he didn't He didn't get re-election. And I caught a lot of shit for saying that too in February. You know, the, a virus is a non-partisan issue. A pandemic is not a partisan issue. Pandemic has to get dealt with one way or the other, no matter which side of the aisle you're on. And you can waste time playing politics about it and trying to make it into a political issue, which I think is part of what Trump was doing when he said, we have 15 cases and they're going to zero which, of course, was a stupid fucking thing to say. And I said, Democrats are going to replay that one clip over and over and over again, and he's going to lose the election, and that's what happened. But you have to, you can't take what you're given blindly if you really want access to the truth. I mean, if the truth concerns you, and you want to make your decisions and be the most well-informed that you can be, and make your decisions for you and your family and your friends accordingly, you have to think for yourself. That's why the best investors are contrarian. 
because they have the gall and the fortitude and the brains to examine facts that other people aren't examining and do the research that other people aren't doing and question the answers that they're given from sell-side research. You know, every company that's ever been shorted and has ever gone bankrupt has had sell-side research that's been positive on it at some point, you know? (laughs) Enron was being recommended. Jim Cramer was saying, don't take your money out of Bear Stearns. There were people defending Luck and Coffee after those allegations. There was Goldman Sachs defending GSX. There's people out there right now defending Tesla, even though that, you know, that one hasn't come down yet. But the truth always has a way of winning out. If you want to wait and be shocked like everybody else, if they do finally say, oh, you know, this did come from the lab or they do finally say, oh, it is a fraud, then don't do your own research. Just sit by and plug your head in and buy whatever line they give you about why they didn't examine those things or disclose them to you from the get-go. That's fine. If it doesn't concern you and I have people in my life that I love dearly that just don't care about the news, they just don't. And I have a lot of respect for that, to be honest with you. I wish I didn't care about the news. They don't care. They don't know, you know, who's in the presidential administration. They go about their lives and they enjoy themselves and they, you know, hang out with their kids and they do their hobbies. And and I, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. And I can't do that, though. You know, for me, the interest is trying to arrive at the truth uh, in a manner that is supported by evidence and uh, and is timely enough that's going to allow me to make advantageous decisions such as, you know, buying ammunition before all of 2020, you can't buy it anywhere. And it becomes, you know, put in, you know, it becomes rationed. Not to mention toilet paper, right? So I want to be ahead of the curve when I invest. And I want to be ahead of the curve when I'm making decisions for myself and for my family. And if you think about just how badly we have been flailing with our response to the virus in general, I mean, we've overcompensated, this is all just my opinion, although I was talking to uh, my former doctor yesterday, I had a nice discussion with him, and, and he was agreeing with me that we've done too much too late. You know, if this thing was out there in November, December, it's already kind of made its way around. And so... The drastic overcompensation of what we're doing now. Here we are 18 months in with vaccines in hand and we're talking about reinstating mask mandates and locking down. And the scapegoat is, oh, not enough people got vaccinated. What are the unpopular arguments that are being made right now? What's the media line? The media line right now is get vaccinated. You know what my doctor said to me yesterday? He said there's always going to be some threshold that they push for. They want 70%, and then after they want 70%, they want 80%, and then after 80%, they're going to want proof, and after proof, they're going to want boosters, because after boosters, there's going to be different variants, and it's just going to keep going. And I don't know if it's like some nefarious scheme to wield power, or if really, you know, the politicians think they're doing what's best, and I don't know objectively really what is best and what the answer is. All I know is the idea that it's just never going to stop seems to not be completely crazy because cities and states are locking back down. It's like we learned nothing from the first lockdown. There was an interesting uh, interview on Peak Prosperity. Chris Martinson talking to Dr. Geert Vandenbosch about some of the disadvantages of vaccines. We all know that vaccines when they're safe and when they're, you know, effective can be great. I'm not contesting that. I'm not contesting that the vaccinations are probably, you know, helping to quell the virus. But there are also other things that don't get discussed in the media. Like how variants can be created from vaccinating during the midst of a pandemic. Um and the interview with uh Dr. Geert Vandenbosch and Dr. Chris Martinson is a very interesting interview. It's on Peak Prosperity. You can find it, and there's clips of it on YouTube. Uh, There's like a 29-minute video on YouTube that has like the five key points from the interview. That's a great thing to watch. You don't have to watch the whole interview. And Chris Martinson, as always, does a great job of breaking things down and letting the data kind of make uh, make his points for him. And that's why Chris Martinson was one of those guys that early on 
was one of the first to suggest that, you know, a lab leak was potentially an issue. So now what's he talking about with the vaccine? Well, he's talking about some of the negatives uh, in addition to some of the positives, but some of the negatives when it comes to the vaccine. And then the question, of course, remains is in 18 months, are we going to be discussing those negatives in the mainstream? Because the, the people that are thinking for themselves now, those are the questions that are being raised there. And we don't know. We just know what what disinformation is supposed to be now. We know that you have to walk on eggshells when you talk about the virus and you talk about the vaccine. But it's been clear, I think, even to people that have been supportive of the government's efforts. And, you know, to some degree, I've been supportive of the government's efforts. And to many other degrees, I've been critical of their efforts. But there, there's a, an admission amongst at least common sense people that have been supportive of the government's efforts who have done, you know, what they're supposed to with the masks, with the vaccines. There's still an admission among some of those people that we've really kind of flailed our way through this. We really have just kind you know, we just, it's don't wear a mask, then it's wear a mask. Then it's, it's, you know, airborne, and then it's, no, it's not airborne. And then it's this, and then it's that. And it's the CDC and the WHO saying different things, and they have different definitions of herd immunity, and they have different, you know, it's just really been a collective clusterfuck in many ways. And it's all that noise that can be confusing. And it's important to remember not only the things that we've gotten right over the last 18 months, but the things that we've gotten wrong and how narratives shift and how narratives change and through examining those things and, you know, starkly or pulling forward in your head the stark differences between what we were allowed to say 18 months ago and discuss versus what is being, you know, kind of pivoted to now. Bring those to the forefront of your mind and ask yourself, okay, well, what now is the issue that we're being told that we can't talk about that might be an issue 18 months from now? That might wind up, you know, being the next pivot. What now is being labeled not only as disinformation, but what's being labeled as the official narratives? And is there any chance that there's room for play in any of those things and that the narrative will shift? You know, leading up to the election, when that laptop story, when Hunter Biden's laptop surfaced, and it was being over and over and over called a Russian disinformation campaign by the mainstream media, despite the fact that photographs of the dude, you know, like naked, snorting coke off a hooker's ass or whatever he was doing, walking around with his fucking schlong hanging out in a hotel room, whatever he was doing, smoking crack, banging hookers, who cares, right? Everybody's up for a good time. Nobody's judging him. The guy wants to smoke crack and fucking bang hookers in a hotel room in Geneva. That's his own business, right? I mean, you may not agree with it. I don't give a shit if that's what he wants to do. But don't tell me that those pictures are photoshopped, you know? Don't tell me that it's a Russian disinformation campaign. And then don't squelch the entire story from the media leading up to the election, which is what happened. You know, Fox News gave that interview to that Tony Bubalinski, whatever the fucking guy's name was, about Biden's dealings with China, which seemed to be exceptionally credible, and it got covered nowhere else. I think the Post wrote a couple articles mainly about the censorship of the story. And then what happened? We get a Wall Street Journal, oh, this is an opinion piece, the Hunter Biden laptop is real. We get this from Fox News, and important to always consider the source, published July 2nd, earlier this month. Images obtained by Fox News on Thursday cast new doubts on President Biden's adamant claims that he never discussed overseas business dealings with his son Hunter. One of the pictures appears to show Biden next to Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim with Hunter off to the side. The Daily Mail first reported on the photos showing Hunter and his associates who were reportedly working at the time on energy deals in Latin America and Mexico. The photos obtained by Fox News were from Hunter's laptop and provided by Robert Costello, an attorney for Rudy Giuliani. A timestamp indicates the pictures are from November 2015. It also coincides with the scheduled 8.30 a.m. quote, breakfast with dad, N-A-V-O-B-S, according to an email from the hard drive. 
an apparent reference to the U.S. Naval Observatory, which is in the which is the vice president's residence. But you know, like here's here's the real coup de gras. This was CNN in April 2021. President Joe Biden's son Hunter dodged several questions in a new interview about a controversial laptop that is tied to him and was seized by the FBI in 2019. Biden told CBS News in an interview clip released Friday he has, quote, no idea whether or not, quote, the laptop belongs to him, but acknowledged that it was, quote, certainly, quote, a possibility. There could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me, Hunter Biden said in the interview. It could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was the, that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me or that there was a laptop stolen from me. That's not what you say if it's definitely not yours. You say, I adamantly deny it. (laughs) And that's CNN. They're going to give you about the best possible spin that you can get on behalf of the Bidens. But remember what happened leading up to the election? It was Russian disinformation. It was a conspiracy theory. Politico. This is Politico from October 2020. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinformation, dozens of former intel officials say. More than 50 former intelligence officials signed a letter casting doubt on the provenance of a New York Post story on the former vice president's son. More than 50 former senior intelligence officials have signed on to a letter outlining their belief that the recent disclosure of emails allegedly belonging to Joe Biden's son, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, quote. And that was the line back then. It was peddled everywhere. Somebody go find the clips on CNN of those people saying over and over, you know, very matter-of-factly, it's Russian disinformation, it's Russian disinformation, it's Russian disinformation. And now here's Hunter Biden, April 2021. Well, certainly it could be mine. (laughs) Here we are. You know, a year after the fact, not even a year in this case, maybe eight months after the fact, after the election, more importantly. So you have to question the answers. I mean, to anybody that was examining that stuff, it was kind of clear that it did look reputable. I mean, certainly I thought so. But by social media and media censoring the story and saying that, oh, you know, because it's disinformation and not allowing, you know, I don't need them to objectively come up with an analysis of a situation. I don't want them to be analysis, but not to allow open discussion and open analysis What it does is it slows the amount of time it takes for us to arrive at what the objective truth is. And this isn't just a Hunter Biden thing, and it's not just a COVID thing. It's an everything thing. Censorship of speech, you know, and squelching the Socratic method and and the questions and answers and the discussion that's necessary to whittle away at disinformation, real disinformation, and arrive at truth and arrive at objectivity and the information that we need to make our decisions for ourselves and for our families, censoring that type of discussion, all it does is it slows the amount of time it takes for us to arrive at those conclusions. So the purpose of today's podcast is not to repeat what I've always said about finance, which is, you know, to do your own work, do your own research, draw your own conclusions. Nobody out there has superpowers that they're going to be able to, you know, uh, do the work incredibly better than you. Do your own research. Speak to a personal financial advisor. Sure, get advice. But, you know, don't just plug in and go 100% on what somebody says. Think for yourself a little bit. And I've always said that on finance. But, you know, the stark kind of change in the narrative about the lab leak theory today had me put that tweet up this morning and really made me think about the importance of questioning the answers in general everywhere. Not just believing something because it's what you're told, right? And, and generally, when I'm ranting about this, I'm ranting about monetary policy. We're being told the Fed knows what it's doing. We're being told that inflation is transitory. We're being told everything's going to be okay. We're being told we know how the future is going to happen. But we don't. I mean, the pandemic was staring us in the face in January 2020, and we still didn't get it. We're thick, all right? We're fucking thick. We're slow. We need things to be waved directly in front of our face to get it. It's sad, but... Collectively, you know, we move slowly to arrive at these types of conclusions. So you have to stay sharp and you have to make your own decisions based on your own data, based on your own analysis, based on your own critical thinking to whittle away 
at what the real objective truth is despite what you're being told. And that not only includes questioning what is being pawned off as conspiracy theories, right? It doesn't only include going and questioning what's being pawned off as conspiracy theories, but it also includes questioning what you are being told is the objective truth and the only way to do things and the narrative about it and we're certain about it and anything else other than that is disinformation. Because you know what? A lot of times the government will kind of land in the right direction and they'll give you the you know the right advice that maybe it'll take them longer to get there than it would if you had thought about it yourself. But you know, there's a lot of good people that work in government. I don't think it's one giant big nefarious you know body that's trying to mislead everybody about everything. There's some good people in there, but the time it takes for them to provide you with what really the objective truth is, if they ever do, versus how quickly you can get there by questioning the answers yourself and performing a little bit of your own analysis, there's a big delta there. So that is what today's podcast is to do. It's to encourage you to, in the words of the Mighty Mighty Boston's, I borrowed their saying, question the answers, which I've said before, is to question the answers. Where are we going to be 18 months from now? Somebody asked me at the gym the other day, guy at uh, Jiu-Jitsu Open Mat, you know, where do you think the market's going to go? I was like, up or down? You know, I'm not going to sit there and spray in the meadow about what, you know, hey, we're definitely going to hyperinflation and nominal prices are going to rise or we're due for the biggest reckoning in stock market history because I don't know. And I think it's intellectually dishonest for people to say that they do know, that they have certainty. What's going on now that 18 months from now we're going to say, maybe we shouldn't have done that? Do we need to be testing vaccines on children that are five years old when the virus disproportionately doesn't affect children? Is that necessary? I don't know. Everybody seems to think that that's the next logical step in trials. What are we going to be saying about that in 18 months? I don't know. Maybe we'll say it was the best idea we've ever had. Maybe we'll say it was, uh, you know, a crime against humanity. Who knows? Or somewhere in between we'll land there. We have to keep questioning the answers. We have to keep questioning what we're being told. You know, at one point we were being told double mask. Single mask, double mask. Get vaccinated. Take your mask off. Put your mask back on. We're locked in. We're locked down. Everything's open. Everything's closed. What the hell's going on? In finance, in life... Question the answers. I'm out of here. Peace.